We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. A couple of things before we get going today. First, I'd appreciate it if you could take the survey. The link is in the show notes. It's like right at the top. Second, stay tuned for the end, and I'll give you the actionable insights I learned from this episode. Remember, this is something new I'm trying. And thirdly, you can support the show by buying the audio version of the book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, narrated by David A. Knesser. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. Now, on to my guest for today, Jacob Wedderburn Day, co-founder of Stasher. Jacob and his co-founder were friends at Oxford, where they studied economics and brainstormed ideas for possible businesses. After moving to London, they came up with the idea for Stasher, after seeing how people they knew were looking for places to put baggage temporarily while visiting and traveling. Inspired by Uber and Airbnb, they put up a website and started offering storage solutions in their own flats. Eventually, they found an investor, a storage company in the UK, which enabled them to build the business and form partnerships. Through SEO, partnerships with travel businesses, and online reviews, they were growing strong until COVID hit last March. With everyone on lockdown, Jacob and his co-founder decided to go into hibernation. They were able to do this 
because of a government program that's actually this furlough scheme that the UK government had, where Jacob describes a way they just put stuff on pause, but they could also keep the team together. So when everything started and the restrictions on travel were lifted, they would be ready to go. And this is a really important thing for them because we all know that travel is going to come back eventually. Now, let's get better together. Jacob Wetterburn Day, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Well, thanks for being on. I think we met through matchmaker.fm, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I believe so. It's yeah. actually it's the first time that's come off for me, so that's cool. Really? I'm, yeah. I'm the first I'm hit? <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm new to it, so you're cool. on my first matchmaker day. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm glad I... Which way? Do I swipe left or right? I, I'm so old, I've never used uh, online dating it, it's, it's right. I, I, I knew that far too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny because I've never used an online dating app. I mean, I was I was in a committed relationship from 23 to 41, got divorced, got married again. She mm. passed. She died, unfortunately. I mean, I talk about oh, her all sorry, the time. Yeah. yeah it's really, and then literally a couple months later, I met my now fiance. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so dating apps to me, I have completely like, I don't even know how they work. Right. So amazing. Um, but thankfully you don't have a dating app. You have actually a pretty cool idea, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a second. It's called Stasher and it's really actually kind of neat. And I obviously want to hear more about how that is, has been um, affected by COVID, but before we talk about that and dig into that, like I always like to say, let me know and our listeners know how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I guess, you know what, it's, I feel like timing is a big factor when it comes to businesses in general. And I think, I think we did get very lucky with the timing for this. Um, I, I really like the expression around making your own luck in the sense that I think we were actively looking for opportunities and we were, you know, we, we'd kind of set things up well in that respect. But then the idea for Stasher came about literally because my co-founder sort of said a joke and we were like, hang on a second. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you that story quickly. Um, basically, we met studying at university Ant and I were reading economics together it was around the time that like Uber, Airbnb, they were becoming like, you know, household names and, and that sort of sharing economy model of business was being more and more popular. And we loved it. And we were like, oh man, how cool would it be to run our own startup? Like how great would it be to be entrepreneurs? We always liked that idea. And we used to brainstorm like terrible ideas all the time, like in our, in our dorm rooms and stuff. And actually it was um, the summer so I, I did a fourth year like masters, but the summer between that starting and Ant went off to get a job. We moved to London that summer and um, I literally, Ant was living between Euston and King's Cross, which are two of the busiest stations in London. Um, for anyone familiar, they'll, they'll know that's the case. And um, he used to always have people asking, oh, do you mind if I leave something with you? Can I just drop this bag with you for like a day or, or if it was students sometimes for like weeks over the holidays, whatever it was. And one time he just turned to me, he was like, man, we should be charging people for this. <laughs> and then we looked at each other and we were like, hang on a second. And it's like, you know, this fantastic light bulb moment. It's sort of the stars aligned. And um, and then I think we did the we did the right thing. We did the smart move of just like, we didn't think about it too much. I mean, we did research it, but we basically went and built it. We were like, all right, let's knock up this website quickly and cheaply where people can book storage. 
originally it was just our flats. They were the only two things on this website. <laughs> and, um, and then actually, ironically, the first bag ended up being booked at my place. Um, it was a guy going to see a football game and he was like, oh, I just couldn't find anywhere to, to leave stuff. And then I found you guys online. I just Googled and, and it snowballed from there, really. It was one of those things where we realized storage in cities is a genuine problem, especially temporary storage. Airbnb has kind of made that even into, into a bigger um, market than it was before, because especially when you check out your Airbnbs and the end of your holiday or the start, that's when you really need it. And um, so, yeah, that was, that, was, that was how it all began. And um, uh, I mean, it's, it's evolved a little bit since then. We, we don't tend to use individual hosts anymore. We tend to work with businesses and hotels just because they're able to provide fixed opening hours, CCTV, that kind of stuff that just like makes the whole thing more professional. But um, the essence of the business is still that it's, it's about providing short-term storage when people need it in cities. And I think we were very lucky because it was the first business we tried to set up and we, we sort of struck gold with it. And it's, yeah, five years later, we're still doing our best to store bags. Um, the world is making it <laughs> difficult right now, but. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I was going to say, I mean, that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk with you uh, so quickly because, um, you know, clearly you depend on travel. Well, what's mm. interesting is that like, I have had this problem before mm-hmm. with storing bags in places, especially on business trips, mm. especially when I'm like kind of transitioning between different places um, and it's like, oh, you know, the hotel is like all the way across town, but I've got, you know, a meeting here, but I don't want to bring all the clunky stuff. I would love to be able to, you know, and, you know, put it somewhere. And usually if you stay at a hotel, you know, they're mm-hmm. pretty, they're pretty nice about that. I mean, they're pretty cool. But if you stay in an Airbnb, like you mentioned, uh, or with friends really, or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah. Or with friends too. I mean, even friends, you sort of don't want to be, well, I mean, some of them will will be cool about it, and that's great. But like, it, let's say you're in transition or whatever, that's always the the challenge. It's po- kind of like the eight the eight to ten hours where where am I going to put this silly thing before I go to my next destination? So exactly. Uh, and and I noticed that well, not only I think you guys are started in London, but now you're in across like in 250 different cities. Yeah, uh, which is pretty yep. amazing. So how how do you go about like? figuring out what city to go into. How was that expansion and rollout? How did that, how did that all work? So it happened pretty organically, to be honest. It was, um, we, we started out in London and um, that first year, really, I mean, we were kind of running it as a side hustle and it was pretty fun. And um, then when I'd done my exams um, and, and all that was kind of put aside and we started focusing on it a little bit more, we got to the point where we were getting like daily bookings and we were like, I actually remember we, there was a day when we made a hundred pounds and that was like, that's it. I'm quitting my job. <laughs> it's time. And um, what we actually did, I think was the, the sensible move was we, um, we, we, we started looking for some investment because we figured if we could get like an angel round together, then we'd be able to, uh, you know, then we, then that would give us like a, a year to properly give it a shot, like without kind of risking our own very limited savings at that point. Really, it was just our student debt, right? <laughs> you know? um, so we raised this round of financing. Um, and the other thing that was quite cool about that one, to be fair, we we went to like, uh, I don't know how many listeners will be familiar, but in the UK, there's this company called Big Yellow Storage, which is, um, it's the UK's largest self-storage company. So I guess a resident sort of storage guru, uh, we went to him and we we're like, hey, we've got this short-term storage idea. It's, it's kind of slightly different to what you're doing, but you might like the look of it. He came on board as our investor, and I think that was really good validation for what we then wanted to do. Um, so that was pretty valuable. 
but you asked me about expansion. So basically from that point onwards, once we had that money, we kind of set about expanding around the UK. We kept it pretty local to begin with. We we had London. We we're like, okay, where else is big? It kind of, it was fairly obvious from that point on. You look at Edinburgh, Manchester, uh, Brighton in the, in the case of like, it's London's beach, people call it. Bristol, you've got all these like cities that become sort of more and more obvious to expand to. And actually that year went so well, like the expansion around the UK was great. A lot of that was just us doing like door-to-door sales. We started signing our first chain deals. So we'd have like hotel chains. And then when we signed a deal with them, they had locations everywhere. And that was even better because then we sort of rolled out quite naturally. Um, And around that time was when we started looking at venture financing and and expanding internationally. That's a much bigger challenge. Um, And and like you say, yeah, we've we've expanded now to 250 cities, which is pretty cool. It sounds great on paper. it was, yeah, it's hard work. <laughs> um, but mostly that's been spread around Europe and then USA and more recently Australia. Um, and, you know, there's still so much of the world to go. Like there's Asia and South America we haven't even touched. And I was actually pre-COVID, that was the thing we were looking at next. We were getting quite excited for. Um, those plans have kind of been put on pause. In light of COVID, what we're actually looking at more seriously is we've always been focused on like big cities because disproportionately that's where you get like the biggest volume of travelers. COVID's kind of changed the way people travel. Um, there's certainly more emphasis on domestic and, and stuff like that. So actually there's more value now in providing the service in smaller cities that we wouldn't have paid so much attention to. So we're really focusing on that in like Europe and, and the United States. Like, you know, in the past we were like, okay, New York, it's like worth putting all the effort into New York. And now we're like looking around and we're thinking, okay, like, you know, there's actually, there's smaller cities that will be also quite valuable this year while travel's kind of changed. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, especially here in the U.S. Oh, well, I mean, we're well. I'm sure it's the same in the in the U.K. as well. But I mean, here it's such an expansive place mm. where travel within a country, you know, a lot of people will go to like camping or stuff, mm. or or <clears throat> these little Airbnbs or these little bed and breakfasts that are like super small, but yet they may hop around the coast. I mean, I know, especially here in California. A lot of a lot of people have just been, you know, I'll just drive up the coast and find these mm. little places. But you still got the same problems as in sort of well, if you're driving, not so much. But not so much if you're driving, which is which is definitely a challenge. Um, yeah. yeah, if you're going around by public transport or or, or anything else, planes, whatever, um, then yeah, there, there's still a need to be met, I guess. So what what's your strategy on like SEO and you know having people find you because mm. like it must be must be an interesting way to kind of find, I mean, what do people even search for? I mean, yeah. <laughs> like where to stash my bag or like help. I can't <laughs> figure this out. I mean, I don't, it's interesting because totally see the need. Cause I've had this problem before. Totally like get it. In fact, all my business friends, all the friends that I know that travel for business when we could, this was a constant struggle. So how do, how do people find you? I'd say we have three main channels. Um, SEO is absolutely one of them. Um, but like you say, I mean, I we, we I don't think we'll ever be able to rely completely on SEO unless we become super big and famous somehow. Because I think there is that real problem of like, a lot of time people have this problem and they don't even think to Google it. They're just like, oh man, I've got my bags. Like, you know, what am I going to do? The people who do Google it tend to search things like luggage storage in city. And um, actually that's, that's by far the main keyword. There's other variations and, we're like, yeah, we've done a lot of work over the years to to optimize to to be top of Google when that happens. Um, we've done some amount of like paid advertising on Google as well. It was much better in the early days. It was great back in like 2015 when we started. We used to convert people profitably. Those were good times. Like now we have to take a sort of 
longer term view of lifetime value to, to to really justify that. And I mean, actually, in some ways, it's nice. Like one of the things we did in COVID was just pause that altogether because it's just like, you know, it's money that we just might as well be saving right now. I've, um, I've heard that so many times. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the other channels though that really work for us, uh, I mean, one is just like word of mouth referral. It's it's the product is always done really, really well on, um, on like review scores. Uh, I think we're 4.8 or 4.9 out of five on Trustpilot of like 20,000 reviews uh, wow. as well. So like people tend to really love it and it's nice. I think it's one of those things that's generally it sort of falls into that category of you have this problem. You're like, no, not again. What do I do with my bag? And then you find us and there's a sense of like relief and surprise yeah. and delight, I guess. And it's just like, it's simple, but it does, it does exactly what it says it'll do. And um, I think that probably accounts for the nice review scores and our customer support guys are actually, they're fantastic. We've always put a lot into that. So that's a factor. And then the third um, channel, I guess, is is around sort of travel partnerships. We always um, we always put a lot of effort into like, you know, integrating into the Airbnb community and, and talking to sort of the vacation rental managers more professionally and other sort of tour agents or, or DMOs or whatever, people who work in travel and can just like, you know, refer us either with a discount or 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 just like inform people about us at point of need. Travel is actually a really cool industry like that. It's something I've found that really come to love about it is that I guess because a lot of products are time sensitive, you know, you, you have to catch people at that point when they need oh, it. Yeah. They're, it's they're why like, when you book planes, you always have rental cars, like as yeah. the next thing shows up, right? So yeah, yeah, I mean, there's some sort of, it's like, a, yeah, there's like a perishable time window that like mm. must go down at some exponential rate that's so crazy that exactly as you book it quick you're you're done <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so so it tends to be a really friendly industry for making partnerships and referrals and that's also yeah that's been the other main way that people have uh, have typically found us wow so mostly kind of word of mouth not so much organic i mean some organic but word of mouth and partnerships seem like the the mm. two main drivers, at least now, I mean, early on the whole ad stuff. Yeah. Once that gets arbitraged out, then, you mm. know, the noise just the noise floor goes up and you just can't, yeah, can't get yeah. through anymore. Wow. And so as COVID hit <laughs> and you see like, I don't know, 90% of people don't travel anymore. Travels down. Mm. It's some ridiculous number. That's, I mean, it's, you look at the graphs, it's like this step function. If anyone knows about math, it's just like, it falls oh, off generally. a cliff. Yeah, like you can't, <laughs> like how could, you can't even make that stuff up. I mean, how did, you know, you mentioned a little bit about pivoting to kind of more uh, like smaller cities. Has there anything mm. else you guys had had to do other than, you know, stop the ads and stuff? I think, I, I'll be honest, COVID was, um, was a complete disaster. <laughs> um, but it, there was one saving grace of it. And I think this will sound like a strange thing to be grateful for. But um, when COVID hit, we spent two quite frantic weeks, like, you know, looking at our cash flow forecast, trying to figure out what, if anything, we could sort of pivot to, like, you know, a lot of companies did some really great stuff in that time where they could kind of reorient to serve the community. Um, I, I guess some sort of struggled with that. Some, some did a really good job. And we, we looked at ours and we were like, we're in a double bind here because on the one hand, you've got all our hotels and shops and they're being forced to close by regulation. On the other hand, you've got our travelers. They're the sort of supply and demand functions of the platform. And there's no demand because people can't travel. So we kind of have nothing. <laughs> like we have this platform, but it's, it's not really able to, provide its marketplace service as it has in the past. And actually 
it led us pretty quickly to the conclusion that the sensible thing to do at that point was just kind of hibernate things. Like, you know, we, otherwise we'd be kind of scrabbling to make something out of nothing. And we just thought the responsible thing to do at that point was preserve the money that we had. Uh, the government then came out with a furlough scheme, which was a fantastic relief because, you know, the last thing you want to do in a sort of crisis situation is panic and have to lay people off. And it came out at a perfect time because then we were like, great, you know, we've worked really hard to build up this team apart from like professionally being good to work with. They're obviously, we're a small team. And so they're people that we really like, you know, you, yeah. in a startup, I guess you do sort of foster a closer sense of camaraderie than in a necessarily bigger business. So <laughs> yeah, the esprit de corps is pretty high. I mean, you're like in it yeah. to win it and you're against, you know, the big Goliaths of the world and you're like, screw them. We're going to crush them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you do foster that real sense of like, team spirit exactly like you said and so yeah thankfully the government schemes came out when they did which meant that we could uh could retain the team and and then we yeah then we had this weird period of hibernation and actually as an entrepreneur that was particularly strange because i think we've been going 100 miles an hour for years uh we raised around a financing you mentioned in the intro we raised around a financing that closed literally in january 2020 it's funny oh timing i know man you just threaded the needle my (laughs) The, the the podcast network that I'm on is called uh, Blue Wire. Uh huh. Oh, nice. And Blue Wire is is a sports podcasting network, right? And I'm an advisor, and they just let Crazy Uncle Jari do stuff, right? But he closed his financing in January 2020 as well. <laughs> and I remember him saying, "Hey, man, I'm about to." Go. I'm like, "Get the check, bro. Get the check." You know, because no one knew. Was yeah. Yeah, no, no one, one no one mentioned no one COVID in the run-up to it. You yeah. know, like we're a travel business, but I think because most of the deal had been done by like December, it just formally closed in January because of Christmas. Yeah. Like it, it never came up in conversations. It's amazing. Yeah. Like it was, you know, it was it was only like as we closed and then we were doing the kind of PR wave following the round. Yeah. That people started asking me about like, you know, what do you think? And I was like, I was like, well, you know, we were planning to expand to Asia. So that's a bit of a shame. Like we might just have to focus elsewhere. And then obviously it just like encroached further and further across yeah. the world. And yeah. You know, it was it was a it was a weird period. Obviously, everyone everyone remembers, but it's it's funny listening back to like yeah, yeah stuff that still, we said at the time. Like still going on a little. I, I mean, know. you know, we're still pulling out of it. But what's interesting is that like I remember seeing a bunch of VC guys that I know, and you know the the doom and gloom. This was like there was this very famous Sequoia Capital presentation. I read it. I yeah, read it right. at the perfect time. I saw it the day it came out and oh my God, it was, it was, yeah, really, really and this, and useful. Yeah. I think it was either 2000 or two, I always forget because 2000 and 2008 around here in Silicon Valley was almost exactly the same. Mm. Uh, although 2000, 2001 was, I think a little worse because the, the fundamentals were just completely, you know, the, everything was a little shake. 2008 was mostly driven by, you know, this uh, credit default swaps and mm-hmm. bad mortgages here. Right. But <clears throat> same message, right. Guys at Sequoia, you know, almost like battle, you know, uh, war footing cut deep cut. Now you're not getting any more money. I mean, the whole, every single rumor of this was just floating around. Right. Mm. Um, and of course, like they, they, they want to kind of scare folks because well, here in Silicon Valley, like the money just flows like a river. Once, once you're in, once you're in, you're in. And, you know, the, they, the, the old joke was, 
oh yeah, we're not making money now. We'll make it up on volume. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got to make some money anyway, but same thing was going around. And then what happened was interesting. Um, A lot of the businesses that were going to benefit from COVID literally investment just started to accelerate. And I think that, Mm. I think people realized, and, and this is the thing that Intel knew, Intel knew this and was so good at it until now they're not, they're kind of struggling, but Mm-hmm. Intel always built in a downturn. They always said if if they had that capital and they they were very conservative about capital allocations, but when a downturn happened, they they built up capacity expansion like they just went crazy because they knew as soon as things turned around, the people that had the capacity there mm-hmm. were going to grow like by orders of magnitude before because the traditional way businesses go, right? What's the first thing a business does when tough times happen? It's the classic, every accountant, you know, they cut costs, right? Mm, mm. It's rare for a business that's in like decent shape to invest. Even ones with lots and lots of money. I mean, some of these Valley companies got billions of dollars in the bank sitting around. I mean, the heck are you doing with it, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, and so it's really interesting that the, the attitude changed pretty quick, like substantially quick. I was pretty shocked actually, because Mm. that mentality is so ingrained in cut, 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 cut. And I'm not saying you can't live without with, you know, live outside your means. And you got to like, if your business is screwed, you got to do something, but the attitude changed. Like they're now, they were investing more too, like more venture deals happened in 2020, like lots of them, like you'd never would expect this because Someone figured out, which is the right thing. If you've got the money, you put it in where you can grow relatively unmolested. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, I mean, honestly, like, but that's if you've got a lot of big pockets. So wow, it's a great so- time to make outsized returns though. I did see like there was yeah. so much capital flowing in. And I mean, yeah. Airbnb was a really interesting example. We were obviously watching them closely, but they yeah. they like hit on hard, hard times, had Silver Lake come in, but now I think they're just they are in such a lean, healthy position. It's actually like, it's fascinating. Well, yeah. I mean, but cause fun, look, look at the fundamentals of the world. This is why like first principles like Ray Dallow, I don't know if you've heard of Ray Dallow. He's yeah. yeah he's great. His principles book, right. You know, the, it's, it's, it's a New York times bestseller. It's, it's a decent book. It's written. Okay. Right. But, but his principles are pretty good. Yeah, but like, the, advice. yeah, the fundamentals, the, um, you know, down to first principles is what he says. This is the same thing that, you know, the guys over at uh, Berkshire Hathaway do, right? Like, okay, what are the fundamentals? What are these, like these principles that are always going to happen, right? And someone who was even talking about this, another investor, they're like, okay, another pandemic happens. What's going to move, right? And and those are the things that people invest in. And what's really interesting is even something like what you're doing, which we know travel will come back. Mm. We know. There's no, no doubt. I mean, I know people that like, oh, I want the vaccine so I can travel. My mom, she's like 78, <laughs> right? She's like, well, if I get the vaccine, can I travel to Hawaii? And I'm like, mom, you're like a double cancer survivor. You're like, <laughs> you know, like, don't you think you should, oh, but I got to, tra-, you know, like, so there's going to be this. It's, kind it's of an demand. ingrained need, isn't it? I think it's really quite innate. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, there's been a disruption, but how, how are you guys kind of planning for when things turn back on? It's a really good question. I One of my advisors put it to me in a metaphor along the lines of cycling. Are, are you into cycling? Are you, 
I uh, I was an Ironman triathlete for a long time, so I've wow. spent my my fair amount of sh- time in the saddle, and probably the reason why I hate it so much. <laughs> although although I will admit, um, I, I like to take the little lift bikes. I, I, they're in every city. These little the electric bikes. ones, yeah, or those. Yeah, and I'm fun. like, I'll just tool around, and it's electric. Cool. I'm lazy, you know. But yeah, I, I've, okay. I've cycled before. Yeah, no, no, no. The metaphor was something along the lines of it. He was like when things go crazy when we hit this downturn it's actually it's a little bit like cycling uphill uh it's like hitting the ascent you know things are moving slowly it's hard work it's effort but he's like what's going to happen is you'll go over the top and then suddenly like things going to be picking up this is the downhill part but information is hitting you so fast at this point like it's really difficult to process and actually this is why you want to do your preparation as you're going ascending like get mentally ready for this point so that you can cruise the downhill and do it really well uh, and and that's yeah that's the metaphor right it's just like you want to do your preparation now or times acquire and i think again i'm i'm i am really grateful for these government schemes because i think it would be so much harder if we'd lost our team like at this point in absence of those schemes we probably would have had to do something like that right like you know we're just not bringing it like there's some amount of revenue flowing through stasha but not enough to justify the size of team that we had um but the furlough scheme in the uk has basically functioned like a pause button so we're able to preserve those resources keep them in-house and then it means that when things turn on like hopefully it's it's kind of equivalent to pressing play the same team is in place we just get back up to speed i think that's majorly key and if we didn't have that i'd be thinking again about hiring and like you know uh just how we get more people in and and, and how we sort of tackle that um it's just the biggest challenge right now is just the timing of the rules like as soon as we get clarity on this it's going to be so so much clearer and so much easier and i think um in the uk like you know there's bad news this week around the fact that everything's looking great in terms of our vaccine rollout but not so good in europe and so there's been like sort of delays in terms of okay you're probably not going to be able to travel internationally until july this is what's been leaked and that's so disappointing because it's like, you know, the roadmap we were working towards was like potentially from May onwards, people will be able to travel. So I think that's the great challenge right now is just, uh, you know, you don't want to move too soon, burn resources ahead of time. Um, you also don't want to leave it too late. You kind of, you just want to time it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just, that's the, that's the golden thing, man. Yeah. The, luck, the luck on this is like, you know, like when you started your company, right? Like, you know, you're yeah. in college and, everything. and, you just got lucky. You, so mm. what's interesting is you got lucky, but then everyone says, well, okay, is it just luck? Well, it's really not, right? When the luck comes to you, you need to be able to see the luck to take advantage of the luck. And yep. you have to actually also have the skills and the opportunity, mm-hmm. which, which which you did. You probably didn't even have a lot of like the skills to develop a web Definitely page, but, 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 you know, but you're like, <laughs> I think I'm onto something pieces. here. Yeah. <laughs> But I agree with you on the schemes that I think governments learned from 2008. I know we, I know the U.S. did, and I give, I give the Fed chair, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, so much credit for just like we are not going to screw up like we screwed up in 2008. Because the reason why the economy mm-hmm. failed to recover in 2008 was because they were worried about inflation or all this stupid stuff that's like bro more academic right than, i mean yeah, yeah i mean come on like macroeconomics is like almost the biggest bunch of bullshit ever right? i mean <laughs> and i'm sure people will like oh what do you mean i'm like look you cannot predict what 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 a kind of global economies will do at any kind of granularity they it's always screwed too up complex a system well yeah. 
every economist screws it up. Like, look at this, look at this, look at all the, you know, all these uh, predictions. They're all bullshit, right? <laughs> but the fundamentals of economics, the microeconomics at the local level, what matters, like what fundamentally matters is exactly what you just said. I need to preserve jobs in my local community mm -hmm. because it's the local communities that are the ones that are going to suffer. I mean, yeah, global economies in the shitter or whatever, but the global economy is built neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood. And they fact exactly. they did a they did a study on this in um in the US, the Center for American Entrepreneurship, which just formed like four years ago, shockingly, right? <laughs> and the guy over there. He's like John Deary. He's like, well, the net growth in jobs is from startups. Big companies don't grow jobs. Actually, big companies are net negative job growth. It's startups. It's companies that are less than five years old that drive all economic and job growth. Awesome. And, and they like, oh, really? <laughs> so, so the scheme that they're doing here, the Payroll Protection Act as well, which is a bit similar. You guys did it a different way. We we you know, anyway, same thing. It's the whole idea of this kind of universal basic income approach where if the government's going to shut the world down, okay, well then you're going to need to pay me to shut the world down because of exactly what you said. And I'm so glad you put this up, put this out because this is really critical to what, why you're going to grow like a weed. Once this is done, you have, you don't have to worry about getting the team up to speed. You already have them in place. You've mm. already worked with them. They already know what's going on. You've preserved the capital and the intellectual property and the esprit de corps is there. It, Like you said, I just got to hit play. I'm mm. on pause. I got to hit play. I don't have to hit rewind, right? Yeah. You hit rewind, you're six months. You're done. I mean, that's what they learned in 2008. It's like it doesn't – Everyone was worried about inflation, deflation, all this stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, no. Give money to people so they can live. <laughs> mm. And so businesses can survive because, you know, small businesses. Anyway, so. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm glad you mentioned universal basic income because I do think I was sort of hoping. I remember when I first saw the schemes announced and I was like, I've always been a fan of the idea. I don't. I, I presume from how you're talking, you. you oh, I'm a big fan. I'm. I'm an Andrew Yang guy. I'm a Yang gang guy. Like I Love wanted it. him as president. And <laughs> I hope he. I hope he wins New York City. Gov. I'm sorry, New York City mayor. Because fundamentally, like, go ahead. Like, I'm. I'm. What did. What did you study at Oxford? You went to Oxford, right? I did, and economics. Yeah. So I completely. <laughs> Completely confirm everything you said about microeconomics. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, oh shit, I didn't know that. Oh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I I've agreed with everything you said. Um, oh, okay, cool. I'm validated. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And and, and I, oh, I shit, feel, I didn't know that. <laughs> <I love laughs> no worries, man. <laughs> I feel I feel very strongly on the UBI point because I do think there's so much good evidence for like even on the micro level, I think you're right to talk about things on a micro level, right? Because it's the macro level is kind of academic. It's, it's looking at an aggregation of all these micro things and the micro things are where shit matters. And it's at that level that people make the kind of decisions that, that, that add up. And, and I think what's really interesting about UBI is like more than anything, it's like the psychological effect and all the studies they did, it just, 
they said like it allowed people to make decisions with so much more security and freedom that they just ended up making better life decisions. You know, the money didn't get wasted. It got invested in like, you know, their own education, stuff that they needed just to kind of like get by day to day. And I think even in, this last year is weird because like you said, I mean, one of the conditions for sort of receiving this paycheck is you stay at home and you don't end up actually stimulating the economy that much. But I do think, you know, run in practice, like if we could sustain something like this um, and it wouldn't need to be anywhere near the scale of the schemes that we've done, right? Because ideally jobs would be subsidizing most of people's incomes, but you'd have enough of a safety net from the government that, you know, you want to think things like crime are going to come down. You want to think like all the poverty reduction spending they do, could just be like scrapped and reinvested in this. It's just like one scheme. hundred percent, hundred percent. Anytime you look at communities that are in poverty mm. and everyone's like, well, how do we solve poverty? You give them money. Really, <laughs> sounds so easy. <laughs> there's no, there's no other scheme. I mean, poverty, it means I'm poor. Mm. Okay. When I'm poor, I have to make really critical life decisions that may not be in my best interest in the long term or the community's best interest. And you see this in every poor community in the world. It is not that hard. It's emotionally hard. It is this Puritan work ethic that we have here in the US that we got from y'all over in the UK when we were, you know, <laughs> when we were a colony, which, you know, like we were like, I mean, the reason why the U.S. exists is because a bunch of entrepreneurs said, screw the king. We want to build an independent life that completes us on our own terms. You're all the way across the Atlantic. What the hell do you know what's going on in the Americas, right? You don't. You have no idea, right? Of course, British, you know, <laughs> we're all buddies now, right? Because, because it's true. The best example the best example of local communities building themselves up was here in the U.S. Mm. We did we, you know, you see Hamilton as an example, which is a great. I was literally you know, thinking of Hamilton. Yeah, Hamilton. you know, I had the and king then, singing in my head. <laughs> yeah, I know it's great, right? And then, but what's even better is I was watching this. Uh, I think it was a Netflix documentary about uh, the rise of the. Pirate Republic, some Pirates of the Caribbean thing, which I never knew the real history of the Pirates of the Caribbean. I never knew like there were privateers, this whole like thing, right? But the precursor to even democracy and freedom was these pirate Nassau, which is a pirate republic in the Bahamas. Okay. Free, free land, no, no real, no slaves. They was like this free to be you and me. They had a democratically elected kind of a thing. And I didn't even also didn't know that the slave trade reason. One of the reasons why the slave trade went away is because the pirates would raid the slave ships and they're like, no, slaves are bad. We don't like that. And (laughs) I mean, and so, so, but it's this local control, like the macroeconomics of it was, okay, we need to trade from, you know, all around the world, but locally (laughs) these pirates Mm. of the Caribbean were like, nope, we don't want, sorry, we're going to take your stuff. So so it's so fascinating because I, I think the only real kind of macroeconomic thing, policy, this universal basic income idea, is both a microeconomic and a macroeconomic. It has a micro is a macroeconomic impact, but really a microeconomic policy where if you have uh, abundance, mm-hmm. 
And that abundance is asymmetric, which it is here in the US, which is, is here in a lot of places. And everyone here, if you're a Republican, like, oh, redistribution of wealth and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, to a certain degree, yes. But if you want to protect your wealth, <laughs> you mm-hmm. need to make sure that everyone's protected. Because if you just know anything about history, what <laughs> happens is when people are destitute, they got no choice. But what do they do? They rebel, they fight every revolution on the planet. They rise up. Right. So I don't know, like, like you're right. I think the macroeconomic stuff's just all academic, interesting. And I, I bash them a little bit because, you know, okay. You know, the rational actor, (laughs) no one's rational. Everyone's irrational. But I, I do, I do think that the, that, you know, having these discussions are really cool. So Mm. I yeah I always had way more time for the micro stuff and especially like some of the behavioral stuff that like Kahneman and those guys um yeah really good stuff yeah really good stuff and and I do agree with you that micro bubbles up to macro Mm. but I think fundamentally if you understand microeconomics and you understand you know the, the basics of supply and demand and how local economies work and the interdependencies of the networking effect and all that sort of, you know, stuff that you studied. And I cursory went over when I got my, MBA. <laughs> you know, we, we're just like, I'm an engineer. I just want to get this thing. over. <laughs> I mean, it's math. So it's like, okay, math, okay, whatever. But, um, but yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, cause yeah, that's, that's actually a really interesting example of, UK has been very um, doing a lot with the vaccine. Mm. Europe is paused. Mainland Europe or continent of Europe is paused for for political reasons and for lots of different. Mostly sounds it, like it, yeah. It's interesting like a lot of bad PR and oh yeah, AstraZeneca and yeah, they didn't do good PR at all. Um, and I'm a professional, so I can say that about it. Uh, but how how do you think? So so your I mean, and your business actually is a microeconomic business. I mean, mm-hmm. it's city by city by city. Um, I wonder how, like, I wonder how, like, okay, things start to turn back on, which they will. Mm-hmm. You, you guys, do you guys have leading indicators on like when demand? Because I, I got to believe that it's going to be a step function and then it's going to be a problem. You're going to have like, oh, we don't have enough places to put things. Mm. That would be such a nice problem to have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nice problem to have. Don't worry. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, do you have like leading indicators of how this works? Because I just would be yeah. so fascinated to kind of know how it's how it's, it's tricky out. to it's tricky to have that like unlocked. But we try to. We we have a few good advisors that are well placed, so we get data around like flights and vacation rentals. And I think those are in terms of like data streams that we monitor. Those are the two things you're just looking at like volumes and to the extent that we can and like destinations, like where things are kind of warming up. Um, I think to be honest though, in this case being kind of unique, I think the main thing literally is just like particular rules, you know, as soon as the UK government is like holidays are allowed, like you're going to see an explosion. You're going to see a complete explosion. And, and the same thing I'm sure, like, you know, I guess what is the current state in the U S right now? Is it, it's like, I guess it's kind of state by state, but by and large, you people are moving around domestically a little bit, right? Like, yeah, it really depends on the state. Um, yeah, you know, we're people think that we're this like the bastion of democracy, which we sort of are, but we're a republic, right? And so, this is a loose confederation of states in a republic with a quote unquote weak central government that that makes the rule, but 
the state's mm-hmm. going to be like, not going to follow that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. And then the only way that they get put into line is this literally this thing called interstate commerce where the government can allocate money. And so they manipulate it that way. So like Miami is a great example. Like Florida has been very free to be you and me. Very open a lot of the time, right? Right. And Miami's now on lockdown. Oh really? Because it's because of spring spring break. Right. So all these last year all these college kids went to spring break. Of course they're college kids. They're going to have fun and do things they're not supposed to do because their prefrontal cortex is clearly not developed enough to make rational decisions. Clearly, like, <laughs> right? Because I want it free to be you to me, right? And then they're going to fly back to all their wherever and get people infected with COVID. So, um, you know, state like Florida, relatively loose lockdown. State like California, where I am, mm. relatively heavy lockdown. And it really depends on where you are. Up here in Northern California, we were locked down pretty hard. So people have been traveling around like the Bay Area and Northern uh, Northern California. Southern California was an absolute shit show. They really? had these huge, LA County had huge surges in cases and they were just running. I mean, it, they have a different mentality down there. It's, it's, it's literally two different states almost mm-hmm. um, when it comes to it. But up here, we're way more loose. Um, and people here are a little more compliant, I would say, which is, we have a lot of really good institutions and up here in the Bay area, we went through the AIDS crisis in the eighties, mm. which taught us a lot about how to deal with a public health crisis. Like we practice this, we practice, I mean, California's with earthquakes. We practice earthquake drills, right? Because there's going to be an earthquake. You know? yeah. <laughs> and so we have California's a little different. I mean, you know, like Texas and Louisiana and Florida, they have hurricanes, but that happens every year. Like everyone knows. And, you know, mm. people have hurricane parties and stuff there. I, I guess the thing I'm thinking their risk tolerance is a lot. They're a lot more risky quote unquote, like generally than, than state of California. So I would say by, by summer, we'll probably be in the most open tier we've ever been in probably in May, June right now, the Bay area. I mean, you could go dine indoors. Right. So, and I see more, I'm in San Francisco. I see more tourists. I do. I can, you can tell a tourist around here pretty easily. <laughs> the ones walking around with a night, you know, so, you know, if you ever want to ex- expand in San Francisco, I'm sure there'll be some people, you know, and they're, right. they, and they are actively wanting tourists to come back. There's a huge tourist cool. town more than actually more than tech town, a lot more money in tourism here. So. Well, it's, it's a big industry, isn't it? That's the thing. I mean, so I, I can't remember the exact stat, but it is something massive, like almost 10% of the world, if not more, employed in tourism. So, I, yeah, I, I, it's a shame it's going to be such a coordinated effort. I think that's the thing that makes it most challenging with that industry in particular is because a lot of other elements of hospitality, at least, like you'll get domestic back and that's good. And and we'll do all right when domestic travel comes back. You know, that's that's going to pick up a bit, but... You want the full sort of international tourism experience really for travel to get back on its feet. And I think what we're seeing at the moment, and hopefully this will change, um, but what we're seeing at the moment is, you know, countries are kind of just like sorting out on their own. And I don't know how long it's going to take before we get to this point where they're like happy talking to each other. Hopefully the UK and the US will pioneer something. Like yeah, that. I think so. Vaccinating well, at good rates. So yeah. Like, so, yeah. So what what I think my prediction, I put, put my prediction hat on is <laughs> a year from now, we'll be back to somewhat normalcy um, because the majority of the world will be vaccinated. 
The first world will be vaccinated probably by summer and you'll start to see first world travel. Maybe. Mm. I mean, Biden wants everyone to have a 4th of July cookout. I mean, within moderation with the family, blah, 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 blah. And there's a lot of debate about, tell me about my free, you know I mean? We're <laughs> Americans were just a huge eclectic mix of a bunch of Yahoo cowboys that like don't want to be told what to do. And that's been our whole history. So it's not a surprise. <laughs> Everyone's like, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean, that's who we are. Like, we built this place this way. We're like this rugged individual cowboy type, right? Mm-hmm. But I think I think you're right. I think what will happen is you'll have to be vaccinated to travel, just like you had to be vaccinated to travel to third world countries, you know, with Hefe, yellow I mean, fever like, or whatever. Yeah, right? whatever, yellow fever, typhoid, like you had to or you're, I mean, like they won't let you in. Um, so I think that'll start to happen. And then there'll probably be like a bunch of step functions in my, my estimation. There'll be the people that are like, I'm going, I'm sick of cabin fever. And you'll see this massive spike. Mm. And I think it'll level off a little bit and then more people will feel comfortable and there'll be another spike. But I think we got another year, bro. Yeah. I, it's, it just feels that way. And the reason is, it's not just because I'm doom and gloom because I actually think we we weathered this pretty well can, compared to the, 1918, 1919 Spanish mm. flu pandemic. That mm. was a massive shit show more so. And it was a world war. And <clears throat> I mean, it was a disaster. This, mm. I mean, I know people will him and ha like everyone did a bad. Actually, we did a pretty good job to be honest. I think viewed in the fullness of time, that's definitely true. I think it's, it's easy to be critical in the short term and there's definitely, you know, there's, there's things they'd probably do differently given a second chance, but at the same time, you know, a year to turn around a vaccine, the speed of the rollout in, at least like in our two countries has been pretty quick. And yeah, like you said, I mean, the Spanish flu, that killed 50 million people, which was a way bigger proportion of the world (laughs) as a population at the time. And I don't know where COVID's at now in numbers. I've, I've sort of it's it's in the low it's in low the millions, low millions. Right? It's in the low yeah. millions, so. and of course, it's disproportionate across different you know countries. I mean, we have the most deaths here in the in the first world U.S., and that's exactly because we're a bunch of Yahoo cowboys. <laughs> make make no mistake about it. It's because we we value freedom more than being told what to do. And mm. you, and if you look at the deaths, you'll look at the disproportionate amount of old people. It ripped ripped through um, retirement homes, just devastated them. And you look at the all the minority populations as well, ripped through them. You know, yeah. I, I wish I wish it wasn't the case, but like it, it, you know, if we, you know, so you could speculate if we had a different president at the time that it might've went differently. And people are going to Monday morning quarter that back that forever. They're going to write PhD dissertations and thesis and people are going to yeah, write books on this forever. I mean, and the, the economics professors are going to have a field day and the ep- epidemiology. I mean, this is like enough PhD dissertations for like the rest of humanity, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, when in, when in human history, it's never happened, right? Yeah. Never, ever, 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 ever. And, it's all, they're all different, right? But the beauty, I think, to your point too, is you can say all the things that went wrong and things went wrong, right? But generally, I would say the response has been pretty stellar. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always say, you know, 
I, as long as people are trying to do the right thing, given the information they have, like, I don't think you can criticize them. I just I don't think, think that's definitely can. true. I, and I think especially looking back at the first lockdowns that we went through, like there was so little information. I do really think that like, you know, you talked about retirement homes and stuff, and that's probably one of the key policy areas I would have changed <clears throat> yeah. with that information if I'd known, because we just didn't have like a good profile of like where it was riskiest. But like, I really don't think you can hold too much against them. I think they've definitely like, you know, there's better things that could have been done with test and trace. There's been a lot of money wasted on that in the UK. I'm not sure why the UK government thought they could do better than Apple and Google. <laughs> like, I mean, spent more I mean, than their R&D budgets. And, I like, mean, every like, it's ego, man. Like, yeah. who doesn't want to be the, the savior, right? I, I mean, think, you know, yeah. it's like with it's like with entrepreneurs and companies. It's the same thing, almost. Well, I mean, we're humans. We're messy. Yeah. <laughs> we follow the non-rational. We're not economic robots. I'm kidding. <laughs> Another jab at economists. <laughs> you'll, you'll I love you guys. I love you guys. <laughs> you'll have to fact check my numbers, but I think I read this. I think Google's R and D budget for Google as a whole was like thirty-six billion, and the UK government wasted thirty-seven billion trying to build its own test and trace thing, and like just with so much less success. Uh, but that's me being critical. Like you say, I think, you know, in, in, in the fullness of time, we'll look back and it's like, it's a year. Um, I, I guess it's going to be more than a year now, but it's a year to, to this point. And we, we look like we have an exit strategy, at least, which is good. We look like we're coming out of this. I really look forward to when the news cycles, if, if the news cycles like turn positive, because I think at some point the message is going to have to be like, all right, we need to get out. We need to start supporting the community. You need to start doing these things. You know, we need to take a more proactive stance towards like people's mental health and actually like get out and do things. And and obviously for now, that's not the case, but I'm I'm hopeful we'll get there. And, and then that's, I guess, when travel happens too, which I- Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you like what, like I know we talked about like leading indicators and metrics, but I mean, what's your personal, what what would be the personal thing or metric or news that you would see that'd be like, okay, it's going to start going back hard. Like what, what do you think it is? It, it, it's that rule change. It's, it's, it's entirely for me. It's just about like, as soon as they say holidays are permitted, it's just going to happen. And it's because it, it, I think the thing is, I don't know what their indicators are. They must be looking at indicators around deaths, hospitalizations, case rates and variants and all that. Sort of I stuff. mean, I, I can tell you what we look at here in San Francisco, which is predominantly what probably the world looks at. They, What's interesting is that the the challenge it's case cases, mm-hmm. but the biggest thing that they worry about is hospitalizations because of capacity. Which I think in, is smart. Yeah, capacity in ERs and in in, in in um ICUs because you don't have much capacity there, and if there's a huge surge, not only you can't put people places. That's mm-hmm. one, and you don't. I mean, there's all these horror stories, right? But two, you run out of doctors and nurses to to care for them at the most extreme level, right? Mm. So, it, I, I when I I was on this thing called the um, for San Francisco, I was I was on this the um, economic recovery task force, and we with a would bunch look of at friendly economists with a well business people and some economists. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, like they have their they have their need. He was a he was a micro guy. <laughs> um, nice. But uh we had all these business leaders on this this task force and we were like they said, "Hey, what do you need in order to be successful? What, what do you think we should do?" And I remember 
the head, Dr. Colfax is the head of the health department here. And his presentation, they have a dashboard on it. You can see it everywhere. And it was just absolutely focused on ICU capacity and PPE, like all the fundamental, like I cannot let, I cannot overwhelm my, my facilities Mm. because if I do, their leading indicator was also, you know, positive tests and then, uh, diagnosis, right. And then hospitalizations and then ICU. And he, he knew the trend. I mean, and he'd show us, he's just like, see this, this thing's going to go exponential. And if we don't catch it, my entire infrastructure is wiped out. Like I can't keep up with people. They're just going to, I can't, I can't, I can't treat them. And Mm. they, that's what they worry about the most. It's like, this will get out of hand. And I think that, yeah, that message around flattening the curve was always the one that yes. made the most sense, right? That was the one that was easiest to get behind because, you know, cases where we're always going to be kind of a function of like how much testing you were doing, but hospitalizations fundamentally were the thing that I think it always made the most sense to prioritize as, as a sort of measure of like how bad the stuff is, because exactly yeah. like you say, and then it has like indirect effects on other illnesses, right? And, and that, well, that's it, generally it, so. Yeah. And then it, it sort of spreads. So now like you can't go to the hospital for elective stuff. And then you're like, well, should I really go? I really don't want, and then people get sicker and sicker and they just sort of delay. So not yeah. only is there going to be a, a travel <clears throat> boom, a bubble that's going to bop and it's just going to go accelerate. A lot of these people that are like, oh, I couldn't go to the dentist for a year or, oh, I should go check my, the, the doc, there's going to be a, just a run on healthcare services too. And there's yeah. just going to be a run on everything, I think. <laughs> <laughs> People desperate to do anything, just get out. I think so. Like you said, yeah. we're, we're like, well, you want to travel. And, and I, you know, again, I appreciate your time. This has just been such a fascinating conversation about like, you know, your, your business and how, how you're thinking of things. And I, and I agree. It's, who knows what the spark's going to be, but <laughs> you are going to be busy, my friend, real quick. <laughs> I can't wait, man. I look forward to it. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, appreciate your time. Thanks again, man. Stay safe. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Keep us informed and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks again, Jacob, for being on the show. Good luck with Stasher. I know eventually it's going to be wildly successful when people can back get back and travel. So here, as promised, are the actionable insights that I learned from my talk today with Jacob, co-founder of Stasher. One of the keys to Stasher's success has been able to do one thing and do it well. This means they can easily meet people's expectations, garner referrals, and good reviews. This is really important. The one thing to do right, they do great. They use their downtime wisely to prepare for the next stage. While Stasher has obviously been hit super hard by the pandemic, the company now is focused on getting ready when restrictions will be lifted. And this is an important thing. If you have a setback and you can retrench back and kind of build something for when things turn back on, this is a great example of doing that. So always think that way. It may be a pause. It's never a failure, quote unquote. Microeconomics is way more useful than macroeconomics, right? The reason being that local conditions matter more than anything when you're trying to build a business. Local matters. So go if you want to go global, 
You got to focus on local first. And it's not to say that macroeconomics is a bunch of BS. It's just has massive limitations. So always focus on like the market you're in and what the dynamics are. So that's what I learned from Jacob. Thanks again for listening and uh, see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.